Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hello, my name is Evander Beatty, and I am speaking. Hi, Evander. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh. Good to see you guys. Thank you for, for joining us and being willing to talk about your mental health journey and, and how it's been for you and sort of all of, you know, all of the stuff before Kosha and I, um, before you joined us, Kosha and I were talking about, you know, we, we both have issues around how the media portrays mental health challenges for people, whether that's if you're depressed, you can't get out of bed and all you do is cry and you can't, you know, and a lot of people, you know, we know from just seeing public figures who have, you know, killed themselves, who have committed suicide, were depressed, but very few people knew about it. And to the world, they appeared, you know, in a good mood and happy and really productive and doing a lot of stuff. Same thing with anxiety, you know, and Kosha has been pretty vocal about having, you know, severe general anxiety disorder and that people are just like, well, maybe so just you stop worrying from, about things, uh, right? Instead of understanding that it's wow, not I, a thing that you control. Yeah, it's not that easy. <laughs> and it's not just about worrying, right? Like it's not, it's not just that I'm worrying. There's other things that is part of anxiety, right? Ruminating thoughts. Portrays it as um, not being as bad of a situation to be in for one. And it also, I think, pokes fun at it. Um, I think a lot of people like will, will refer to themselves as being like OCD or whatever, but really they don't have OCD. They're just, you know, that's like a humorous way. Yeah. They're particular yeah. about something they want. They're organized. Yeah. I think it's also really interesting. People say, Oh, I'm, I'm a little OCD. First of all, it's like having a mental health issue is a challenge is being, is like being pregnant. Like either you have it or you don't have it. You are, or you aren't, there's no like little, you're not a, you, you might have a mild form of anxiety disorder, but you're not a little bit, you don't have a little bit of anxiety disorder. You don't have a little bit of AC, OCD. You have, you know, you struggle with OCD or you struggle with depression. It just might be mild or more severe, but you have it or you don't have it. So I think that's also a really interesting way of putting it. And that a lot of symptoms, a lot of behaviors can, can be helpful for various different mental health challenges. Um, my, my husband, for example, is, is quite particular about where things are and where things go 
Um, but it's not because he has OCD. It's because having everything in its place, quote unquote, helps him manage his anxiety. So it's the, the, right. Then you could be, that's just a way of sort of a managing anxiety that could look like something else. Yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit about how you came to understand that you were struggling with OCD and, and sort of how it showed up for you. Yeah. So basically uh, when I was like 18 years old, I was a freshman in uh, college and uh, I began to be pretty uh, worried about getting like a, a, a terminal illness. And there was a situation where I was exposed. I, I, I wasn't exposed to HIV, but I thought I could have been. So there was that little inkling of doubt. And no matter what I did, as far as if I got tests that, and they came back negative, it was never enough to convince me that I wasn't going to have it or develop AIDS at some point. So, and that kind of uh, was the beginning of, of the whole process with OCD. I went to a doctor and he originally diagnosed me with manic depression, which is now, you know, people refer to it as bipolar, but bipolar, right. Back then it was manic depression. And he, I'm not quite sure why he thought that's what I had, but me and my parents, we kind of didn't think that was probably what I had, but we were not doctors. So we didn't know. But anyway, we went to a, a different doctor and he felt like I had OCD and uh, the rest is history. Yeah. So did between the time that you started worrying about getting HIV and getting sick and the time you got diagnosed, did you see your symptoms get worse? You know, did you see it ramp up or was that kind of just the fact that that's all you could think about or you kept coming back to those thoughts was enough to be like, Oh, there's something going on here. Yeah, yeah, that definitely is basically the way it worked. Um, it caused me to have to drop out of school. It was literally like thinking that I had HIV was the only thing that mattered in my life. And everything else was put on ice and put on hold while I tried to accept the fact that I didn't have it. But yeah, I mean, it was... It was my whole life there for a few months, for sure. So for our listeners, and, and for me at least, I'm sort of having a hard time wrapping my head around this um, in the sense that, and I'm not going to say, well, why don't you stop thinking about it? I'm not going to say that, right? That's a, that's a bit, as we started- We just talked about that. We just that. started yeah. talking about that, and I'm not going to say that. But I think, what does that- feel like so this thing you thought you were exposed and then you start thinking oh what if I get it and then what was your you know sort of what does that feel like to you do you feel like you don't have any control over the thoughts that are in your head or that you try to think about something else but you keep coming back to this yeah I mean originally I just was afraid that I was gonna die as I saw doctors and got the diagnosis and realized that it was kind of all in my head that that was the new thing that I had to deal with it wasn't HIV anymore I was worried about dealing with OCD 
And back then, it was definitely not as well known and widely discussed as it, as it has become now, I'd say. Back then, nobody really knew what OCD was, and I, I didn't really know what it was. I just remember, like, telling all my college roommates when I dropped out of school, I just remember getting them all together and telling, you know, everybody in the dorm, yeah, so I've got OCD, and uh, I've got to go home and, you know, take care of some stuff and, and try to get my head back on straight. I think a lot of them didn't. They didn't even know what I was talking about, but that's that's kind of how that went. So maybe this is a good time to talk about how OCD and when OCD presents, because if you looked back before you were 18 years old, now that you have your diagnosis, are you like, oh, yeah, there were elements of OCD that I can pinpoint previously or did it start presenting at that time? Well, I definitely had a ridiculous amount of paranoia and a ridiculous amount of anxiety as a, as a, like a grade school kid and then into high school. I did not have any of the fears that I ended up having once I was diagnosed with OCD. I was constantly worrying that like people were watching me in the windows and that, you know, I had to watch everything I was doing because I didn't want someone to misunderstand or misconstrue what I was doing or saying. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, obsessed about worrying what other people thought. And I think it kind of shifted over to, you know, being OCD as far as like worrying about having stuff be clean and disease, you know, not getting disease and, that kind of thing. So it, uh, you know, it definitely showed up as, as far as anxiety when I was younger, but when I turned 18, that was really when it kind of shifted to be worrying about illness and worrying about, you know, stuff being clean and dirty. Were there any outward symptoms or any outward behaviors that you were demonstrating, you know, when, when you said it like really kicked into gear and, and it, there was a big shift where, you know, it sounds like, Yes, there was a lot of sort of intrusive, unwanted thinking about, am I sick? Am I sick? Am I sick? I don't want to get sick. Maybe I'm sick. But then was there anything that you did outwardly or any behavior that someone could have been like, oh, that's strange. He's washing his hands, you know, eight times that it would have been observable from the outside. Yeah, yeah. There were definitely things that I did that I think people saw and were like, okay, that's not normal. Um definitely a lot of hand washing. Um, I would, uh, when I was in school, my freshman year, I didn't want to touch any of the doorknobs to any of the rooms that I was going to go in. I didn't really want to use the, the public bathroom and the public shower that they had there. And I don't remember exactly what I did that was different, but the way I handled myself like in the in the public shower area and mm -hmm. stuff was trying to keep my feet from getting dirty mm -hmm. from the floor and just kind of weird little things that I was doing that most people didn't do and just kind of made you think and, and kind of wonder okay wh wh where's this guy coming from as time went on I started exhibiting a lot of behaviors as far as getting upset and like having like public outbursts 
on top of all the compulsive obsessive compulsive stuff I was doing like cleaning and washing and you know following different rules and that kind of thing like no shoes in the house things that were like non-negotiable they had to be that way or that was the end of it (laughs) but isn't there an element like there are no shoes in my house and there's an element of it that's like no no no, this is my house take your shoes like I guess what I'm saying is like it's hard to parse some of that stuff out where you're like but it's reasonable to say no shoes in the house yeah it is so and it's my house it's non-negotiable I guess for me at that time it wasn't my house (laughs) oh okay well that's (laughs) it was my house I was only you know 18 19 years old and um, you know, my parents were pretty, uh, accommodating cause they knew that it was a, a big thing, but like, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, it's not too much to ask for people to take their shoes off, but for you, if somebody were to walk into your house with shoes on, it wouldn't be the end of your life. Like it was for me. I see. Okay. If that were to happen to, to have happened, or even, I mean, to be honest, if it happened today, still where I, you know, and where I am now that would be a pretty devastating thing for me. And it would be pretty hard to fix it after it was done. Normal people, I think would, they wouldn't get so upset about it and it wouldn't like ruin their day and their life and all that stuff. But like for someone with OCD, if you break one of the OCD rules, it's like the end of the world. And, okay. Yep. I see. And, and this was with your freshman year roommates? Uh, this was like my roommates, but also like when I would go home to my parents' house, um, cause I spent a lot of time at, at home and I, I went to school like about an hour away from where my parents lived. So I was, I was constantly going back and forth. So it was basically in those two different, you know, places that I was, uh, you know, trying to keep everything clean and just doing things differently that, than most people were used to. Got it. Got it. I, I feel for you just having been in, a, in the women's dorms as a freshman. <laughs> I, I also had that sort of, you know, ick factor for sure where I'm like, I don't want my feet touching the shower. Just knowing what I know about college age men. Right. That's one whole thing where I was like, oh, man, I would be grossed out all the time. But I think um, just as you've described, it's like, well, I had to do it this way. I I did. You know, I had to touch doors this way or I, you know, I had to have a tissue or whatever it was. The sort of rigidity around how it had to get done in order for you to feel okay about it. And then what would happen if you didn't you couldn't do it that way? I think that's what people don't understand about OCD very often it or at all. They're deeply struggling with what they need to do and how they need to do it in order to feel okay about having done the thing. Definitely. Yeah. And it sounds like we're talking about really basic things that almost, you know, most people in the, in their day would never think about like opening a door with a door handle. Yeah, I mean, even like, uh, let's say I have a pen in my hand and I'm using the pen and I drop the pen on the floor. Most people would just pick the pen up and, and continue doing what they're doing. 
my brain would tell me, oh my God, you can't pick that pen back up. It's been on the ground. People have been walking on the ground. They've been stepping on it in the with their shoes, their feet, and you can't pick that pen up. That pen needs to be washed. And if you don't wash it before you use it, it's going to ruin everything and your whole life is going to be over. I mean, that's that's literally how it how it felt. Everything snowballs to being like catastrophic. Definitely. Even like I say, even something as minor as just dropping something on the floor like that used to devastate my world when I would do when that would happen. So again, that's sort of this the side that people or part of the part of what goes on internally that people don't know it's not just ew 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 right it's that thing could ruin my life i could be dead it could make me really sick um and just like you said um most people would wouldn't think twice about picking up something that would happen you know fall on the floor most people don't think twice about the five second rule definitely oh god that must devastate you evander yeah i mean at this point, I've I've gotten to a point where I'm able to handle that kind of stuff. But back then and for several years, I'd say a good 10, 15 years, there were just so many millions of rules that I had that were just non-negotiable. And if you wanted to be a part of my life, you had to follow them. And if you chose not to, then you were choosing to not be a part of my life. And that's that's, you know, OK, if that's what you decide. But if you want to be in my life, you're going to have to do things a little differently. Otherwise, I can't stand being around you. And my guess is that people didn't realize that they were they were choosing between being in your life and picking up a pen, right? Like those weren't, they're, those are not diametrically opposed to most people. Yeah, they, they definitely didn't, uh, didn't see the connection. The people that uh, were close to me like my parents and and like my brother and um, eventually I, I uh, got married that was all stuff that that they understood but average person in my life didn't uh, you know probably have a clue you know how that was going so my my parents and my ex-wife they definitely they knew exactly what they were dealing with and they were making a conscious choice to put up with what I needed in order to be in my life. And I think they, they all knew that if they were to stop doing what I asked them to do, then that would be the end of our relationship. We wouldn't even know each other anymore, let alone be around each other. How did your more casual friends, you know, or more, more distant family members like cousins or, you know, things like that. How did this, affect your relationship with them have you lost people because they're like this is dumb and I don't want to deal with this and you're making it up like did you get that kind of blowback or was it like it's just too much and I care about you but I it's too much for me to take on um and then you know how did this affect your parents because it sounds like you're you still have a relationship with your parents and they brought you went back to their house to deal with it but how did your parents deal with your your symptoms and then your diagnosis and you know your your treatment besides my like real close family and and friends for the most part they kind of stayed away from me they kind of were like you know what he's a little bit weird let's just 
<laughs> let's leave him alone. And, uh, and I did, I, I lost a lot of friends and I lost a, a lot of relationships, some of which I've been able to recapture for, I'd say a good 15 years. I was pretty much on my own and, uh, people didn't want to be around me cause they were afraid they would upset me cause they didn't know what rules they were going to break. I mean, they were, they were aware, but they, they didn't want to deal with it. And when you have a, a life where you, most people don't want to deal with you, it makes you feel pretty horrible about yourself. And, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like I don't blame those people for feeling the way they felt because they were just trying to avoid upsetting me and, and, you know, having an issue, but you know, it does get very lonely. And, as far as uh, with my parents, my dad, he's obviously known me my whole life and he's he's been around the OCD, but he still just doesn't quite get it the way my mom does. My mom has been such a great help to me as far as helping me keep stuff clean. And on one hand, you say, OK, well, that's not good. She's, you know she's feeding into it and she's making it so it's worse for you. But at the end of the day, the way she looks at it is I want him to feel comfortable. And so I'm going to do everything in my power to help him feel comfortable. And not too many people in my life besides my mom made that choice. And so there's two sides to that for sure. Yeah. I can see that when people would say, you know, or when people would stay away to not upset you, did you, I absolutely understand that it, you know, you feel, you feel lonely and then you're like, ugh, people didn't even want to do the work. Could you see the sort of twisted love in that? That's, well, I like this person and I care about them enough not to, you know, trip on these, you know, wires, not to, not, and not to create a, not to make you feel bad because I've done something that I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do or wasn't going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, there were so many things that someone can do to like trip on the wire. Um, there were a million wires. Mm. So I really got to a point where I didn't have anybody in my, in my house. It was just me. The only people that could ever enter the house was my ex-wife and my mom and every so often my dad nobody else got to come in the house because there were just too many things that could have gone wrong. I think people got to a point with me where if they were my friends, they just knew that, okay, <laughs> dealing with them is, is going to be a different situation. We just kind of got to roll with it. If we're going to, you know, be friends and be, you know, be a part of his life. And I think a lot of people back then, definitely felt like they were walking on eggshells and that's not how you want to feel when you're having fun with friends and stuff. You don't want to feel like you're about ready to, you know, do something that's going to ruin everything and just destroy the whole situation. So people don't want to be around that. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that as it got worse in that time before it got better, that you were having outbursts when someone would trip on one of those wires. So it wasn't just about making, doing something that upset you, but then you would lash out. Is that correct? Yeah, I definitely would, would lash out. I, uh, 
you you have to understand that for me, I was so scared and so so terrified that anger was how I was, you know, voicing that fear. You know, I was a mean person to my my parents and to my ex-wife. I mean, my marriage ended because of the way I treated my ex-wife and nobody in their right mind would have stayed longer than she stayed. And, and I know that, but the, the thing is, is like when you're constantly petrified of stuff getting screwed up and stuff getting dirty, you explode once something happens. And for a good many years, I was pretty hard to handle and hard, you know, people didn't want to be around someone who was a ticking time bomb all the time. And, uh, you know, it definitely added to the mystique of staying away from, you know, Evander. It was, it was when Evander goes off, it's like something you've never seen in your whole life ever before. Okay. Okay. I do understand the idea of anger being the easier, not the, the, the go-to emotion. Anger covers up for a lot of other emotions, fear, sadness, loneliness. Like there's so many emotions be- behind what anger can represent. So I, I definitely understand that. I, I can also imagine though, Everything feels like stress, right? Looking around, everything is always stressful because there's always germs everywhere. Things are always kind of unclean. You know, there's always something. There's always a possibility of getting sick. So you're constantly holding that. You're holding it. It, And then someone does something and you just lose it because you're always just, just below the surface of losing it. Yeah, that that's definitely true. I, I put it uh, to people like this. If you, every time you walked out of your house, you felt like you got bodily waste and blood and and, uh, garbage and every nasty thing you can think of. Imagine that all falling on top of you the minute you go outside. You are going to be a pretty big time ball of stress for the rest of your day until you get yourself clean again. And that's how I feel and felt every time I left the house and it does, it makes you, it makes you just so, so uptight. And it, you know, it's like I said, it's like walking on eggshells and eventually you let go. Yeah. Yeah. You can only hold on to that for so long. If you would explode at a hundred percent and you're basically always at like 99.5. Yep. It doesn't take very long to get over and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be something that um, someone intends to do. Obviously people don't know and they, you know, maybe they touch something and you're like, Oh, that's it. You know, end of the world or whatever. So you moved back home with your parents. What kind of treatment did you seek? Is it, is it talk therapy? Is it medication? Is it the combination? So what does treatment for OCD look like for you at least? when we realized what a significant problem this was for me and for, for my family, my parents kind of said, if you're going to stay here, you got to do something to try to fix, you know, make, make things better. So I, I, 
you know, definitely um, saw a psychiatrist and they got me on a pretty heavy dose of meds for the OCD and also for just depression in general. And I've been taking meds probably since like 90, maybe like 96, 97. I was, I was doing medicine. And then I was also, I had a therapist that I would, you know, go to and meet maybe like twice a month I would go. And we were working on basically exposure type therapy. Um, and as, as I got, when I got married, uh, after school, after college, after I moved out of my parents, I started working with a new, uh, therapist and he was really, um, a godsend to me. He, he did a lot for me. And, you know, we, we worked on anger. We worked on the OCD, we worked on, you know, being able to do things that I hadn't been able to do. I can tell you this for me, when I don't take my medicine, you better look out because this is going to be crazy. And uh, that's why it's important. Like if, if medicine works for you, it's, it's really important to stay on it. And I've, I've really tried my absolute hardest to make sure that I always take my medicine because when I don't, bad things can happen unfortunately how quickly does that turn around for you like if you miss because we know you know i work with people with schizophrenia and i know or you know with people with schizophrenia they do not want to take their medicine they don't think they're sick is part of it they lack insight into their into their disease but if they don't take their meds i mean it could it could turn on a dime right it could be a day or two and they can go into a psychotic state. How quick is the the change from treatment evander and non-medicated evander? Yeah, I would say that, uh, let's say it's Monday and I take my meds at night on Monday night. And then I go Tuesday. I don't take my meds in the morning. I go the whole day Tuesday. I don't take my meds at night. By Wednesday or Thursday, you kind of start to miss a lot of agitation, not much patience with anything or anybody, you know, a lot of worrying and checking and constantly like asking questions to double check things. And uh, it's within a, a couple days, I would say that it usually shows up for me, you know, the longer you don't take them, the worse it gets as you go. So yeah, sure. And the, I, I imagine the harder it is or the longer it takes to get back to sort of medicated, treated state, right? Then it's like, it's much more of a roller coaster as opposed to staying steady. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it does take a while to get back on track. That's for sure. Yeah, that's why it's, like I say, that's that's why it's so important for me to to always take it and never, never miss my meds. Well, and that's, you know, Kosha just talked about people uh, who suffer from schizophrenia and that they don't want to take their meds. There are many people who have anxiety or depression, you know, they get on meds and they, and they feel so much better and they're like, okay, well that fixed it and it's done. Right. So there's that, there's that bit of it. And then they go off their medication because they think they're better now or the other side of it, which is a lot of people say, well, I didn't feel like myself. So I stopped taking my medicine. You know, that's, 
the other part of it, did you ever experience any side effects that made you think, oh, I want to get off these meds? Or were you like, nope, it's so important for me to be on these meds that I, I will, I don't care. Well, when I was younger, like when I was in college and like early on in my marriage, I definitely didn't see the importance of it the way I do now. There were definitely times where if I didn't take them, not only would I be more agitated or more you know, easily triggered, I was pretty hard to be around. And when, when you realize that nobody wants to be around you, then you're like, you know what, maybe I should take my meds because everyone's going to end up hating me if I don't, you know, get back on track with them. My mom, like even today, like even now, she can tell when I miss my meds and she'll just say, did you take your meds the other day? And most of the time she's right that I, that I missed them. But like I say, it, it took me very a long time, several years for me to get to a point where I was able to take them regularly. I, I, I it, it caused me to have a lot of weight gain, um, which nobody wants to deal with. And it made you want to eat a lot. And it also, for a while, I was taking all my meds at the same time. It's tough to swallow. 15 pills at once and uh you know three different kinds that you're taking and it makes you sick to your stomach sometimes and you know there's definitely uh physical symptoms that came from it and then you know like I said the weight gain I've I was skinny before before I started taking meds and you know I've gone up and down in weight but it's definitely something that stayed with me you know probably because of the meds I'm taking. Yeah. Lots of times there are a lot of meds that cause you to gain weight and feel hungry. I'm on a, I'm on a med for something that um, basically they give to cancer patients and HIV patients so that they will eat. I don't need it. Obviously I don't look like I'm wasting away, but they give, they give this medicine to people who need to eat. They're so sick that they won't eat. And so it causes them to feel hungry. Um, And it, has the side effect of, you know, treating my illness. So it's, that's a really, and you're right. It's so unfortunate because it's hard enough to sort of be dealing with your illness and how that affects the people around you and your relationships. And then, then you gain weight. And that's another source of discontent. Maybe when you look at yourself and you're like, I don't really like the way I look that much, or this is not how I want to look. Um, and it's hard to do something about it. Yeah, I think a lot of times people look at people who put on weight and say, well, they're not taking care of themselves or they're they're not uh, doing the things they need to do to be healthy. And for me, I was gaining the weight because I was doing what I needed to do to be healthy. I just was heavy. You know, if I were to not take these meds, I'd have a lot more problems on my hands than weight gain. Right. Yeah. Um, and people, people don't think about that. They just see the weight gain and they're like, oh man, it's really just too bad. You know, they just put on so much weight. He used to be, you know, so thin and athletic and all this, but they don't understand what all has gone, you know, what all goes into it. And uh, you can't even begin to explain that to people because they just have no concept of it. Right. And also like I, my problem with that 
And so I have justice concerns, right? I'm always like, that's not fair. My problem with that is the judgment. It's like not your responsibility to explain to them what is going on with you. Like we had, um, you know, my best friend Jen was on the podcast a few weeks ago and she has a daughter who has ADHD and ODD and things like that. And she's like, I don't, I shouldn't have to explain what is going on with her or why she's taking meds or whatever it is. But then you want to explain because you don't want people to think X, Y, Z about you or her or whatever. As you're talking, it's infuriating to me because I'm like, it's not fair that people just assume that you're not taking care of yourself. But then it's like, but you shouldn't have to explain that you have OCD and that you actually are taking care of yourself. That's not fair in either direction. Oh yeah, for sure. So you're on meds, you're on medication and are you still in therapy? Yeah, I pretty much have been in therapy for the most part on and off, but for the most part, since like at least 2000, 2001, something like that. 20 years, 22 years. Has has that combination helped reduce your symptoms or has it helped you manage how to deal with your symptoms? Well, I'll put it to you like this. Uh, the doctor that I've been with probably for about 18, 19 years, for many years, we tried to work on curing me of OCD and we both, after several years of banging our heads and trying and, you know, you obviously you have, sometimes you have success, you're able to overcome one obstacle here, one obstacle there. But we decided that uh, after a lot of years of not getting what we were looking for, we decided to say, you know what, let's, let's try to stop curing Evander from this illness. Let's, help him live with it and do the things he needs to do in order to be a normal, you know, healthy adult who can pay their own bills and who have, you know, relationships and friendships. And, and that's basically kind of where we've geared our, our energy within the last like five years. I know a lot of people that have, you know, that have been cured of OCD. I'm not one of those people. And in order to beat OCD, you have to be relentless and you, you have to go to war for decades. I don't want to go to war anymore. I'm 47 years old. I, I want to enjoy what I've got, you know, with my life. I, I don't want to be constantly in a battle with OCD. I want to, you know, you want to do the things you enjoy. And, and if you're constantly worrying about getting cured it's just it becomes a bit much and can't that just add like that would just add to the worry and the rumination and those thoughts about like everything else that that you're trying to hold hold together definitely definitely i did not even know you could cure ocd no. i thought it was something like my anxiety or like autism that you it, it's so let's start here this is my question is ocd considered a mental illness or is it considered neurodivergent 
Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not really sure what neurodivergent means, but it definitely is a mental illness, um, at least the way I've been taught and told. Maybe you can explain what, what the phrase you just said was that I can't even remember what you said. Yeah. So neurodivergence is if you think about people with ADD or ADHD or autism or other dyslexia, things like that, where it's there's not a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's that like it, it well, part, it can be, but that people's brains are just wired differently and they pay attention to different things and they're motivated by certain different things. There can be chemical differences in the brain, but it's not, that's sort of a naturally occurring pattern in people's lives and people can, they can move forward without treatment necessarily. They don't need medication for it. It's just a matter of learning to move through the world with this particular way of having a brain. So it's more about like, you know, our, my son is on the spectrum and for him, it's just a lot of repeated, like developing the routine of like, when somebody says hi to you, you say hi, hi back to them. When someone's talking to you, you look them in the eye, but there's no medicine he can take to make it better or worse. You just, it's what it is. Right. Whereas things like anxiety and depression, they have more correct me if I'm wrong, Kosha, OCD, schizophrenia, there's this bipolar, there's a major chemical imbalance. And it's not that the brain is necessarily wired differently. It's that things are off balance. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think you explained it perfectly. Uh, yeah, I mean, OCD is definitely, um, you can make strides to get better with OCD. Whereas, you know, those other things, that's just how you're going to be forever. There are millions of people who have OCD who, you know, have overcome a lot with it, but still will not, they're not going to be symptom free ever. So, and, and like I said, there are people who, who do become symptom free. And there was a, a, a kid that I used to, keep in contact with and he you know I met him when he was a teenager and he had OCD back then and uh 10 years later he doesn't have any wow. shred of OCD in him anymore and and he doesn't have to take meds no he he's not taking meds and and he's not doing any of the stuff that he used to do I mean it's weird because I can't fathom being like that but uh I mean for for him and for many others it is it is possible but it's not a guarantee it's not going to happen for like that for everyone and i can understand you know you were saying like hey i'm at this i'm at this age in my life and i don't want this to be the only thing my life is about that i would you know my goal for my life is to manage it and and not have it take over my life it's still a part of my life, but to, to manage it in a way that it doesn't prevent me from doing the things I want to do. Definitely. Which is, I think a, a really, you know, I, I can totally understand that. I respect. Yeah. yeah which respect. is like, okay. Because I think the question then is what does devoting your whole life to 
you know, curing, and I put that in quotes, curing yourself of OCD, what is the value that you get from that, except for that you could, you can, you know, sort of move through the world freely, but what would you have given up to do that, right? And I think if it's like, okay, you spent 10, 10 years of your life, but you started when you were 15 and now you're 25 and good on you and go have fun. But there is a certain point when you go, I'm not sure that I want to make my life about this thing. Definitely, definitely. And another aspect of it too, I tried to work on, uh, and I did this in therapy and still am, am doing it in you know therapy and, and constantly just you know in my own life. OCD brings out a lot of negative emotion and a lot of emotion that can lead to hurt and not only your own life, but hurting others. And I've tried to focus on dealing with the anger better Hmm. rather than trying to cure myself from the thing that causes the anger. Sure. I mean, that's, I think in that way, OCD can move to the neurodiverse neurodivergence column a little bit more because it just like we were saying you know my son my son's going to be on the autism spectrum his whole life but can he learn skills and approaches and strategies to deal with what it takes to move through the world whether that's you know how to talk to people whether that's you know how not to have angry outbursts which we've had some issues with that is it something you can just learn to live with and 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 minimize the negative impacts it has on you and the people around you, you know, and sort of like not make it a big, not make it take up your whole life, right? So, and that's, I mean, there's a point when you just go like, well, I am who I am and I don't want to just, I don't want to spew all my negative emotions out on everyone, but I also am like, that's who I am, right? And also though, like, and, and- maybe I I don't want to minimize what you've gone through with like your anger and things like that, but dealing with anger and, and managing your own anger is good for someone who has OCD or doesn't. Yeah. The fact that you're like, you know what? I just, I need to, I need to manage my anger and deal with what to do when I feel angry versus dealing with OCD, because that's a really, that's a good skill to have. That's a good coping mechanism to have for, for any human on the planet. We try to teach our children that. Definitely. So there is something I have been wondering. And I, I want to, after I ask this question, I want to talk about how COVID particularly has affected you. Because, you know, if if part of the, if OCD is focused on getting sick uh, and germs and, you know, all that stuff everywhere, like I can I don't have the context to imagine what that would have been like for you. When when you're actually being told to wash your hands all the <laughs> right. time. But the question I have for you is, you know, something I've been wondering about is we know that people are people who have OCD engage in compulsive actions because it helps them manage this anxiety that they have. It's the words compulsive right. is in the name. That's how we know. Thank that. you. <laughs> Smart ass. We're sisters, Evander. Can you tell? Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but my point, just like, but let's, you know, and, and Kosh and I, before you came on, we're thinking about that one episode of Scrubs. I don't know if you watched it, where Michael J. Fox was on, and he's this brilliant, brilliant surgeon who has OCD. And the main character is 
kind of idolizing him. And at the very end of that episode, he's Michael J. Fox is just washing his hands and washing his hands and washing his hands. And uh, the main character comes in to say, like, kind of praise him. And he's like, like loses it, you know, much in the same way, getting really angry and being like, I just want to go home and I can't. Right. So the question I have for you, so that's, that's one, probably the most realistic depiction I've ever seen of OCD where someone is actually like struggle, like you can tell that he like, doesn't want to be doing it, but he has to do it. If nothing gets, if you are able to complete your ritual, say I need to wipe, wipe off this, um, doorknob three times before I can touch it. Does it actually make you feel better? Is your anxiety alleviated or is it just like, like you can just take a little bit of a breath and then you it's, you're still back to being anxious. I think you're always anxious, but it definitely helps to do what you think needs to be done. It definitely helps. Like if, if a doorknob is dirty and I, I decide in my head that I need to wash it five times to make it clean, I can go rest and mm. relax for a little while because I don't have to worry about that doorknob being dirty anymore. So it definitely does do that. And, and that's the, that's why it's such a powerful thing because when you do the stuff that you're not supposed to do, it makes you feel better and it makes you feel calm. And you know, that that's like the whole bad part of OCD, you know, it's like the stuff you you're do actually to help getting yourself. like negative yeah. reinforcement. Yep. Yep. That's really helpful to understand too, which is like, it actually does make a difference. If you have to clean the, if you think a real come to this conclusion, Oh, I need to clean that door down five times. And so it's clean. And then I can feel relaxed about it. And then doing that actually does let you relax. It's not about that thing. There might be some other 20 things that you're stressed about, but it's a bit of like, well, that's done. And now I can calm down about that and then something else. But you actually do get the, the benefit of having done the thing, which now, and also that you're right. Like, then it's like, you're not supposed to be doing the thing. And then it stresses you out. So not doing the thing stresses you out. And doing the thing makes you feel better. And you're always having to fight against that. Yeah. It's like, what's, what's more important having uh, clean hands and not worrying or fighting your OCD and fighting the urge to wash your hands. But then now you're a million times more freaked out about it. I I'm sorry, but I'd rather wash my hands three times and be done with it than fighting right you know by not washing the hands and dealing with that anxiety to me it's just not worth it and you're doing it all day you know then you're dealing with that anxiety all until you finally t- you do what you need to do yeah, wash your hands three times until like the next day where you're like finally i get to yeah, wash my wow. hands wow yeah and it's like who who are people to judge like like who is a you know someone to judge that i'm crazy because i washed my hands three times when i just made my day be a lot easier and better by doing it like who are you to judge yeah whether that's wrong or right and that's where i put that into more like of a neurodivergent place where like that's not it's not wrong to wash your hands three times 
just because the majority of people don't do it, don't need to do it, or don't, you know, aren't like worried about washing their hands three times. It's not, it's not harmful to do that. It's not wrong. We make the rules and we say, okay, you can wash your hands once for 20 seconds. Evander needs to do it three times. That's why I think about, you know, my, my nephew, Shailashi's son, where it's like, okay, he might, whatever it is, he might overstimulate and do something this way. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that society has deemed it different. Yep. Yeah. And there's, you're right. There's that balance of like, well, how much, how much am I dedicated to, you know, overcoming OCD versus like, how much can I reasonably do to manage it and still get on with my life and have fun and not just make this like my life's work. Yep. So speaking of washing hands multiple times, what was the COVID experience like for you? Because everyone was freaked out at the beginning of this. Everybody was freaked out and there was a reason to wash your hands multiple times. And there was a reason to wipe down doorknobs and there was a reason. And like tr your trisket. Yeah. Box. And like wipe down boxes and things like that. What was that experience like for you? Did you feel like vindicated? All of my OCD tendencies are actually going to help me. Or was it even more freaky? Because you're like, I'm already freaked out about germs. And now there's this germ and we don't have any treatment for it. And we don't know what's going on. Yeah. So for, for me, I was ready for COVID. Like I lived like I had, you know, threat of COVID for the last 20 years. So right. I really didn't change much about my routine. I loved the fact that I didn't have to go outside every day and I could stay home. And and actually you were encouraged to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I say, I didn't really change my behaviors with COVID because I was doing everything like that already. And you kind of, you know, you do kind of sit back and say, eh, I told you guys, I told you so. I, I you know, I, I knew what I was talking about. And, you know, obviously there's, there's, you know, it's a fine line, but I actually wrote an article about OCD and COVID, um, which was pretty, you know, I'm sure people <laughs> probably, you know, took them by surprise, but for, for people with OCD, you're kind of ready for what happened with COVID. You're, you're, you're already doing everything that they're telling you to do because of COVID. So. But was there a, like, did it get worse for you mentally? Like if you're doing what everyone else did at COVID time during normal time during COVID, did you need, did you feel the need to even ramp up? I personally did not feel the need to ramp up. I, I definitely know a lot of people who did feel that way and did, did ramp it up. I guess I just felt like I was already doing so much to prevent it that if I just kept doing what I was doing, that I'd be okay. But I definitely knew people who completely went over the top and they still haven't rebounded from it. Um, and it's, you know, it's sad because it's, I mean, COVID's a bad thing on its own. It doesn't need to, you know, make your life miserable from a, a emotional and mental standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, you know, and it's, it's challenging, right? Because everyone's got their dealing with different circumstances and everyone has a different risk tolerance, which is kind of what we're talking about with OCD, which is what is your risk tolerance? 
um, that people have different risk tolerance and we're seeing that a lot. And some people never had the zero, you know, they were tolerant of all the risks, even at the, you know, at the peak of like, we don't know anything. We don't know how it's, we don't know anything and we have no treatment and people are like, it's fine. Hey, you know, the people who are like, I'm going to go to, you know, baseball games, even though people are millions of people are dying. And then, then we still have people like you were saying, who are, um, don't want to eat indoors, don't want to, you know, they won't socialize with people unless they're six feet away. You know, they won't, they don't want to, they just don't want to be around people because they are still very concerned about getting ill, which is fine. But, you know, you see the spectrum of risk tolerance, which I hope that people will start to look at OCD a little bit differently because we are now in this, you know, we've all been, the globe has been through a situation where we've all been exposed to an illness to which we had no idea what, you know, when it started, what's going on and how it was going to turn out and how long we'd have to be in this home-based situation. And we saw, we see now people coming out and some people are like totally fine with it. And some people are still very, very risk averse. Um, and OCD is just being risk averse all of the time in some ways. For sure. For sure. Um, one thing I will say though, as far as the COVID part of it, there was one thing that I started to do because of COVID that I didn't do before. And that was because I, I worked, you know, for part of the time that the shutdown was going on. And if I dealt with like money or anything like that, I had never used sanitizer, hand sanitizer before, because I, to me, hand sanitizer doesn't make you clean it makes you not have germs and those are two I, yeah i know what you're saying and so i started to do that because of covid because it kills the covid you know it can kill the covid germs if you do that but it didn't address the clean dirty part of it um which is really what my issue is with my ocd so that makes sense here's here's a question if someone's you would much rather have washed hands right what well, however many times you need to wash them and have hands that feel clean or psych psychologically clean right as opposed to someone saying um put your hands in this dirt but we have sanitized it and there's absolutely no reason there's no germs in this at all but just the idea that it's dirt would be problematic because it's dirty correct okay that is that's actually really helpful to for people to understand that it's not even necessarily about germs. It's about perceptions of clean and dirty. And that could be any number of things. Yeah. And like I say, there are people who have OCD that are obsessed with the germ part of it. For me, though, it's it's clean and dirty because that's kind of how we look at things. You know, my, like my, me and my family, like is something clean or is it dirty? Because those are like my the two states of existence that I you know, spend my life in, I'm either clean or I'm dirty and it's one or the other. And if those are the two states, if those are the two states of being, it is much easier to get dirty than to get clean. Oh yeah. For one sure. speck of something is dirty. 
but you have to be completely devoid of everything to be clean. That's much harder state to get to and maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a lot easier to just stay dirty and be dirty. Um, which is kind of how I've, I've chosen to live my life is my house that that I, I live alone, but there are rooms in my house that I consider clean and there are rooms that I consider dirty. And when I'm dirty, I stay in the dirty rooms and use the dirty restroom and, and the dirty bedroom. But when I'm clean, which is basically when I decide that I'm not going to go outside for a few days, I'm in the clean parts of my house. And uh, hmm. for me, that's, that's what it is. And like, it's not so much uh, like dirt, but for me, dirtiness stems from like bodily fluids and bodily waste and, you know, stuff like that. I, I become obsessed with 20th hand contact of like blood or, or, you know, urine or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot to consider. Let's put it that way. So, so when you say like this room is quote dirty, that's not like it's like to someone who doesn't have OCD, you'd be like, well, it's not gross. It probably is clean. There aren't dirty dishes lying around everywhere, right. and you've and, or like there's not like and you wipe stuff, stuff up right. and like. But to you, it is not completely cl- like there are there could be elements of like bodily fluids or or sweat or urine or something because of something touched something touched something touched something. Absolutely, that that's perfectly said. I uh, I think that like you might come into my house and say his house is a mess but it's my version of clean and that's all that matters to me because it's my house and the dirty rooms are not necessarily you wouldn't look at them and say oh my god those are filthy you but in my head i know that i do different things in them like i there are you know rooms where i totally don't even enter them if I'm my version of dirty and just being in them would make them dirty. Yeah. Yeah. That makes all sense. It isn't, it isn't necessarily about dirt in the, or, or trash or, you know, things that people would consider dirty. The, you know, majority of the population would consider dirty. It's, it's of something that's pegged, specifically and particularly to you and your perception of things. Definitely. So tell us a little about your book. Did this come out of COVID? Was that part of the, like it was inspired by being not necessarily being going through COVID, but as you're sitting there and you're like, huh, what am I going to do with my time? Or, you know, has this been something that you've been thinking about for a long time that, you know, you had some time to deal with? Yeah. So basically um, the book, I started writing in like 2005, Uh which was uh, around the time that my marriage ended. And the book, the period of of the story starts in like 1993 when I was like 17, 18 years old. And it goes all the way through college and then all the way through my marriage. Um, And then this, this book ends at about 2005. And there's going to be two other books that continue the story. 
like I say, this walks me, this book walks us through, you know, how it affected my relationships and my marriage. And then um, also how it affected like my career and my education. The book ends, but it's not the end of the story. There's still a whole lot more to tell and a whole lot more progress to be aware of. You know, 2005 was kind of like a an ending for me. Right, like a, a chapter, right? Like something ended and then something began. Right? Exactly, yep. Wow. Because I didn't really get serious about my my treatment and how I handled my OCD. I didn't get, really get serious about that until probably, you know, seven or eight years after I was divorced. So it took a long time for me to get to a point where I realized that if I wanted to have a regular life where I could pay bills and, you know, be around people, I was going to have to change the way I was doing things. Sure. Yeah. Wow. So that's, well, you've still got two more books coming out then, right? I do. Yeah. One in the series. Is, it, is it a, me- is a memoir then like you're writing from first person? Correct. Yeah. And uh, I'd say that part two has happened. I just haven't written it yet, but everything that's going to be in part two has, has at least occurred. And then hopefully I have an interesting last part of my life that I can write about because otherwise it's going to kind of be a little anticlimactic, but (laughs) I definitely have a second book uh, worth of story to tell without question. Wow. So for listeners, if you are, if you are so interested in doing so, the name of the book is Danger Life. A Dark Voyage Through OCD. You can buy it on Amazon. You can request it from your local bookstore. But you will get a chance to hear about sort of this from the time Evander was, you know, really starting to, the symptoms were really showing up and causing problems till 2005. And hopefully soon we will hear the story about when you got serious about treatment and how your life changed after you get serious about treatment. Yeah, it, for whatever reason, when you when you Google Danger Life, it doesn't come up. But when you Google my name, it does come up. So Evander Beatty is my name. And, um, you know, if you're looking for it, that's a good way to search for it. I bet that Danger Life is there's like some video game or something called okay, Danger first, Life. I just did. I just Googled it. First thing that came up is Ace of Base singing Living in Danger. OK, that's not <laughs> even right. What the heck? And then another video of a band called Lima, L-I-I-M-A, Life is Dangerous. Then apparently there's another book called The Danger Life. And then some is, yeah, Urban Danger, Life in a Neighborhood of Strangers. Come on. I'm actually, (laughs) I put in the title of his book, like word for word. Anyway, we will put up. We'll we'll make sure that uh, it's proper and it's not the Ace of Base song, Commander. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you. Um, we've talked a lot about you know what what OCD looks like in the media, and that at least for Shayla she and I, the only one that seemed very realistic was that episode of Scrubs with Michael J. Fox. To you, are there any realistic or accurate? portrayals of OCD in the media in popular media does anyone get it remotely right right exactly exactly um 
I would say probably not because you you really it's really hard to demonstrate the terror and the and the fear and the you know the emotion that comes along with OCD. I I haven't witnessed everything that's you know been published or or you know shown on TV or whatever as far as OCD, but I have yet to see or or watch something that demonstrates it as well as my book does well that i do not i do not question the book is about as raw and and as real and honestly the book will blow you away you won't even you won't even see it coming and uh i mean the book is not easy to read it's 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 sad and it's it's a difficult pill to swallow and and you just kind of have to be ready for that because it's it's not a I mean, although it does have like some funny stories in it, it's not it's not a happy, you know, make you feel good book. It's it's a book that demonstrates how horrible OCD is and it pulls no punches. Wow. Okay. When I read that, I'm going to have to like have like all of my self-care things around me to make sure that I can recover from reading that because that that sounds like. It, it sounds really, really heavy and something that would stick with you for a long time. So. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've had friends who, you know, they've met me within the last few years and they've read the book and they, they can't even believe that the book is about the same person that they know. Wow. It's, it's not easy to read. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting, but it's, uh, you know, you really have empathy for people with OCD, I think, when you read the book. Which we should. I agree. <laughs> we should. Right. Have, have you seen that episode of um, Scrubs that we're talking about with Michael J. Fox? Uh, I think I did see it a long time ago. Um, and I, I do remember what you're what you're talking about. That That was pretty accurate. I mean, one show that like my parents used to watch a lot was uh, Monk. Mm hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about. It. Yes, yes, yes. There were aspects about that that were realistic and then there were aspects about it that kind of made it be like a humorous thing. Mhm. Let me be clear, it's not OCD is not a humorous thing. Like it's something that you're not you're not going to joke about it and laugh about it. It's it's so I mean in that regard they kind of missed the mark, but obviously it's an entertainment show and you know but I, I think that there were parts of Monk that, you know, were accurate, though. Was he supposed to have OCD? Is that what that was? Yeah, he had OCD. Okay. Yep. I know he was a germaphobe. But and I think do do those things become like people think that they're the same? Like if someone's a germaphobe, they're automatically with OCD. And that's not necessarily like the Venn diagram might be very overlapping, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, and like I say, like I have OCD, but I'm not a germaphobe. Right, right. I I can handle germs. I just can't handle dirty. Right, 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 right. That's a good point. So as we head toward wrapping up, and want to be respectful of your time, wondering, you know, what advice would you have for somebody, without giving away too much in your book, right? I don't want you to tip your hat for the second you know, volume of your, your memoir, but we want people to buy the yeah. books. Yes. What would you say, you know, if someone is wondering if they have OCD or if they're struggling with, um, with these thoughts that won't go away, 
um, and feeling like they have to do things to manage their anxiety, what would you say to them? What advice might you offer to that, to them if they're really like, either like not sure what to do or truthfully, it sounds like this could be a very scary diagnosis to receive. And so if someone's like, well, if I just don't know, you know, a lot of people are like, if I just don't know about it, it'll be fine. What would you say to someone, you know, in one of those situations? Uh, one of the questions I get a lot from people who, who know me and who have read the book, they, they have kids that they, you know, think might be headed down the OCD road. And my, you know, they're like, what can we do? You know, what can we do to make sure our kid doesn't turn out like you, basically? And whether you're an adult who starts to realize you, you might have OCD or if you're a parent of a kid, go see a professional and talk to them about what's going on, um, because talking about it will help you. But at the same time, if you're doing it with a professional and you're, you know, you can take their advice and they'll tell you what to do. I mean, I'm no professional, so <laughs> but uh I, I, like I say, with the kids, it's never too soon to try to nip it in the bud because you do not want to let it fester. And then your kid is living a nightmare. And that, that would be my, my main piece of advice is if you, if you feel like you have it or know someone to have it, address it. I love that Evander, because, you know, she'll, she's son has, um, he's on the spectrum, autism spectrum. And then we just recently talked to someone with, um, severe adult ADHD. And I think all three of you in some aspect or another, like the major part of this is early intervention. The earlier you catch it, the earlier you can intervene and give people coping skills and treatment and therapy the more they're going to gain, right? The more benefit they're going to gain as they learn to cope and deal with how they might be a little bit different. And that just seems to be this like connecting thread for so much of the mental health issues that we are talking about on this season is early intervention. It's not just going to go away. You have to deal with it. Absolutely. Definitely. Well said. So um, the last question that we ask everybody, and it's um, it's been like since the first episode, is uh, what their what their familect is. Just a few examples. So you know, what are some words or phrases that it sounds like you're very very close to your mom, um, even with your ex wife? Like, what are some of the words or phrases that mean something to you that no one else would understand? Can you do you have some examples of familect? Yeah, I mean. I think we talked a little bit about, you know, one of them, and that is clean and dirty. I mean, clean and dirty in my family, those those mean different things than it would mean for your family and, and you guys. So there's that part of it. But then one thing I can mention is uh, in the book, I start working at a mental facility and that place is what created my whole notion of clean and dirty. And so in the book, I, I don't refer to it as its real name. I refer to it as happy time dirty. And happy time dirty is like the worst kind of dirty. And like, if you read the book, 
you'll you'll see what I mean in that regard. It sounds kind of silly right now, but I made it happy time because I didn't want to use the same real name of the hospital and you know oh I see I see I see okay you know there's a lot of terminology like that in my book once you read the book you kind of like oh okay that makes sense then we'll be part of your family but it sounds like if you said happy time dirty to your mom she would be like oh my god like that's really bad that's really really the worst kind of dirty yes she she would not want anything to do with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is awesome if you if you were saying that on a work call or something, people would be like, huh? Or someone who hasn't read your yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, like what? Or something you'd say in like a in your preschool, like, no, we can't be happy time dirty. Like, you know, like it doesn't it doesn't yeah. mean the same thing <laughs> right. as what Definitely. you're saying. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story and telling us, you know, what what it's like for you. And one of the goals that we set out in when we started this podcast was to help people understand each other a little bit better. And whether it was, you know, our first season was first generation, you know, children of immigrants, basically the first generation Americans and, and what it's like on the inside, you know, the inside your house versus outside your house and what feels weird and what feels, you know, kind of normal and what it's like growing up. And we've talked about people who do people on the gender and sexuality spectra. Our third season, we talked about people who um, are doing work in sort of non-traditionally gendered fields, right? Kosha and I think both really strongly believe that this season, as we talk about mental health and neurodiversity, is quite possibly one of the most impactful seasons that we might ever do. Because what we are hearing is people's inside experience, not what not what you see on the outside, but what what people are experiencing on the inside. We talked to someone who had bipolar. So what is it like to have bipolar? Really similarly, she was saying, you know, even people who deeply love you may disengage because your symptoms make it so hard to have a relationship with you. We're learning a lot, but I think I hope our listeners are, like I said, really seeing what it's like from the inside and not just being like, oh, that's when you need to wash your hands five times. Well, maybe, but it's it's that's not really it. That's what people see on the outside. That's not what's going on on the inside. As you were saying, if you read the book, you will actually get a sense of what is going on on the inside. What is it like to live with OCD? Not what is it like to watch someone live with OCD? Definitely. Well, one thing I do want to say, I've had a lot of podcasts that I've done about OCD and you guys had a very unique one. So I wanted to thank you for for the way you guys ran your show and for the questions you ask. I think that this is a really unique episode. So hopefully... uh, Hopefully I did you proud. Oh, no, thank you. You did great. I mean, we you did fantastic. What the what we really hope is that our guests will feel comfortable sharing their experience. There's no right or wrong. Again, we're trying to get people to see, to share experiences, to understand that, you know, just because someone looks different or acts different, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface and that we shouldn't judge, like you're saying about, you know, why I'm on these meds that allow me to live my life, but I, it's caused me to gain weight. They make me hungry. Like, let's not judge people. Let's not assume that we know what's going on just because they do a certain thing or they look a certain way. 
Um, so thank you again. I mean, we're so grateful that our guests will actually share their experiences with us and trust us with their stories. So thank you. Uh, we just really appreciate you coming on. And I would love for you to come back when that second book comes out, because we definitely want to follow your story and your journey. And we want to see you thrive. We just want to do right by you too. So I love when, you know, guests, guests are like, oh, I hope I did okay. And I'm like, no, no, no. it's our job to do good by you. Yes, exactly. So yeah, we, we've, we've loved the last hour and a half. Thank you so much for spending it with us. And we will talk to you very soon. Have All a good right. evening. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yep. Bye.